All right. So the name of the podcast is Application to Admission. I want it to be HBC versus PWIs, but you know, you think that's a little bit too too aggressive. And I, you know, I don't want to be aggressive. I want to make sure that I I treat your your your, your brother, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. right. You know, I don't come off too too militant. Even though Martin was a real militant man, he has some he has some really positive stances on a lot of things that people you know, have diluted his message through this holiday and all that, but that's a whole nother uh, episode. Welcome back to the Application Admission Podcast brought to you by understandingthechoices.com. I am Shereem Herndon Brown, founder, CEO, head honcho at strategicadmissionadvice.com. I am the application side of our application to admission duo and I'm really, really glad that you guys are here. We appreciate our listenership is sky high right now. Like every week we realize that there are more and more people are appreciating us. So when I say we, I can't do this without my partner, Mr. Timothy L. Fields. Tim, tell them who you are. What's happening? What's happening? Good to be back for another episode. My name is Timothy Fields, Senior Associate Dean at Emory University and just a regular guy at my house amongst my family. But, you know, I ha- I'm happy to be back another episode to you know share us share a little bit of knowledge that we have Uh, i think we will always acknowledge we don't know everything there's a lot we don't know there are a lot of great professionals um in the field uh that can you know share information we have one coming on uh today uh but we always excited to share you know our little kind of corner of the world our opinions our thoughts kind of to help you as you all navigate this uh process and you know maybe entertain you a little bit along the way I love it. I love it. Yo, please subscribe, share, whatever you need to do. Leave a review. We need you guys to help us to extend ourselves. We're trying to reach the masses. So you helping us to broadcast our message, the application to admission movement, the understand the choices movement, the HBCU versus PWI movement. We want to make sure that we are connecting with folks who need this information. So we appreciate you in advance for subscribing to the podcast, but of course, uh, leaving a review and sharing it with as many people as possible. I say all that because, you know, Tim and I, as we're thinking about what we're going to discuss this week, and we have a whole outline that we do each week, make sure that we're being informative and yes, a little bit entertaining, it's graduation season. And right, right before the summer, we all, we go to graduations, kindergarten, high school, middle school, and of course, college. And college graduation can bring up a lot of emotions, right? You're proud of the kids who you see and go through the process that for me, you know, I remember that when some of my students were applying to college and you know working with them from sophomore year junior year of high school senior year we applied then they got into whatever their school they were going to go to and now they're graduating so now they're you know quasi adults and that's a big deal um, but it, it brings up a lot of emotions one I'm getting older but more importantly it makes me think about what are they going to do with their lives how like you know who are they going to marry if they get married you know who, what kind of jobs are they going to have? Are they going to start businesses? What kind of impact they're going to have on the world? So it's a real sensitive, but great revealing time uh, of year. So Tim, I, w- I want to ask you before I start, you know, finding my Kleenex talking about graduation, what does graduation season make you think of, particularly as you reflect upon your professional experiences and how graduating, uh, I guess in 1998, led to everything that you've done professionally going forward? Yeah, well, I'll begin with just talking about, you know, the graduation season. Now, this one was very, very special to me for uh, for two particular students that, you know, as far as on the admission side, I had the great opportunity to reviewing some applications. And while each year review thousands of applications, there are just some that stand out. And, you know, there were two students that I reviewed their application. They were admitted um, and then they came and had four wonderful years that went by you know, very fast. And I was able to, you know, you know, one, give their uh, diploma to them um, at Emory, which was a great honor uh, to me. And then the other, I was able to, you know, work with very closely throughout four years. And, you know, we just, you know, not too long ago had a, you know, two hour conversation about their time here. So it's just, it's, it's really a time reflection of, as far as the evolution of students and thinking what they put on those applications when they were are 16 or 17 years old and you know what things are you know you know that they say they're going to do and then ultimately what they end up you know doing and you know in admission I don't get a you know kind of a front row seat to everything that happens uh, but I, I do know that there's some challenges that happen you know throughout you know for all students but these uh, two students really 
overcame some 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 obstacles throughout the pandemic, having to navigate that during your college career, which is a whole nother thing. Um, but you know, it's it's just you know to be on the quad uh, to see uh, the graduation and really just think like, wow, and you know, knowing that they're going to go off and do great things, it just it, it makes it worth it. And you know, one of the things that you know we know that you know being admission on the application side or just being in this field, you know, you can do well. Uh, but are you gonna, are we going to be millionaires or billionaires off this? No, we're, we're we're not. You know, some of it is that we really really want to you know make a difference, make an impact on the lives of these students. And you know, this is a time of year where it makes it all worth it. So you know, right now I'm on cloud nine from that experience. So 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 what about you? What are some reflections you have uh, based upon uh, this time of the year, uh, whether it be, you know, reflecting back on your experience or maybe some students that you've worked with? Hands down, I value the relationships that I cultivate with students when they're in high school and then seeing them mature and then graduate from college and then start their lives. You know, that it is a sense of pride. So I am with you 100% on the, there is no way to describe that feeling. Uh, I think I could replace it with a billion dollars, but not with a million dollars. Uh, <laughs> but keeping it I, all the way one hundred. I, I get it. it all I the way what I am, what I am, what I am. But I will say that for the past twenty plus years, seeing you know my students go to college and become adults and bumping into them, and you know them saying thank you to me for helping them to get to where they are, I've always said, look, I don't want the glory because if you didn't get in, I wouldn't want the blame. But I'm proud of them. I'm proud of watching their their evolution. I'm proud of their their appreciation of the, their college experiences and how they've matured. So graduation season is a very, very sensitive and a positive way uh, time for me. But also, yes, I do think about my my own graduation. And, you know, you probably haven't ever told you this story. So I've technically finished pledging, um, excuse me, finished my process with Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated. Pledging is not allowed. There is no such thing as hazing in my fraternity. Uh, we finished right before I graduated, right? So I tried to get down my sophomore year, it didn't happen. Tried to get down my junior year, it didn't happen. Finally finished on my senior year. So my graduation day, my dean gives me gold boots. So I'm wearing gold boots to graduation with an African, my dean's from Sierra Leone, an Africa, a purple and gold African garb. My mother comes up to the graduation like, what are you wearing? Why is it you're, our whole family's here and you're wearing gold boots, African garb, a fisherman's hat and sunglasses. And I'm like, yo, ma, I've been through a lot. I got this, this is my day. So I, I reflect on that day, walking across the stage, getting my, my um, degree, the bros are barking. I throw up the hooks and I'm just on cloud nine. It's one of the best moments of my life. Just for everything that I endured, going, becoming a man of Omega, going abroad, it, was, it just all culminated in a really good day. But then life happened, right? Then, you know, the, the euphoria wears off. You got to go home and like, oh my goodness, I got to, I didn't have a job. Right. So I had to go home and try to figure out how I was going to uh, get a job and figure some things out. But and I did. So it's an exciting time, but it's a scary time because I didn't want to be dependent on my parents. I wanted a career, not just a job, but we all got to start somewhere. So for all those who are listening to this, who, who are educators or parents, understand that your kids, uh, they're going to start somewhere. You know, 17 application, you know, 17 admission. 18 admission, but they're got to figure something out after four years. I'm mean, ideally they're on the four-year plan. So the insights that I have is that, you know, use your time wisely, but approach adulthood with intensity. And I think about my professional career, we're going to talk to Joe Montgomery today, who's had a fascinating career in education, you know, going for me being a secretary, then being a teacher, then being a college counselor, or assistant to a college counselor, then a college counselor, then working in admissions, then become a director of admissions, you know, then become an education entrepreneur. Everything had his baby steps. So Joe's wisdom and insight and his trajectory, his navigating the, the higher education space is really fascinating. And I'm glad that he was able to share with us because I'm not sure I, I could have done it like he did it. I mean, we all say that, but I know that graduation and moving into a career is not easy. But if you are able to have played a long game, you can be as successful as Joe is, successful as Tim is, uh, and you know, maybe as successful as I am, but know that I try. So, so, so why, why do you stay in it? Why do you stay in it? Like, 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 you know, <sighs> there's probably been opportunities, especially you as an entrepreneur, uh, to say, uh, you know what, you know, this, this education thing, you know, there are the other birds. ways, there's other things <laughs> that I can do. So, so, so what keeps you in it? 
uh, June, July, and August. Uh, no real talk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, uh, I love the summers. I love having summers really to, to myself. But no, I the, the feeling of helping people. Again, I I went to schools that preached or taught you know to have integrity and to help others and you know lifting as you climb. So I'm just kind of that. Always been that person who enjoys helping people. I do get a certain sense of satisfaction from it. And I can't, I tried the one year that I worked in college admissions when I had to work in a cubicle and put on a suit every day. It wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. So I, the, the, as soon as I learned that, I was able to quickly say, you know what, what else could I do? And corporate America, commuting, I can give you a host of reasons, but I do like the students a lot. I like talking about solutions rather than problems a lot. And I do believe that having an impact on young people um, has just been part of my purpose in this world. So as corny and cheesy as that sounds, I just, I've accepted that. I mean, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I just think making the impact in, you know, 90, 90, 99% of the time, we don't know the impact we make on these students. Mm. We help them out through the process, you know, opportunities that I talked about where, you know, you can, you know, see it firsthand what the students do, but a lot of times you don't. Um, and, you know, I can, you know, remember running into students and them, you know, remembering that like, oh, you helped me, you know, you, you know, gave me this advice and, you know, I didn't even think about it, but it's, it's those little moments to knowing that maybe you just made a little impact to help somebody reach their goals uh, that makes it all worth it. And, you know, uh, you know, as Joe's going to highlight, it's mission work. Uh, yes. We were truly doing yes. uh, mission work and, and, and then that is perfectly, you know, fine. And there is a, you know, a, a price uh, for that, but there's also a lot of, um, a lot of gratitude that comes with it. And so that's what keeps me going and, and it's gonna to continue to keep me going. And it's, you know, having platforms like this where we wanna have a conversation, conversation about what are the things, you know, gonna kind of help the profession move forward, but also kind of how can we help parents, counselors, um, students uh, as they try to navigate this uh, process. Salute. All right, we're ready for Joe. I'm ready for Joe. Let's go. Let's go. Well, I, I don't know if I can do uh, an introduction service, but I'm, I'm going to try. So, you know, I, I'll say, you know, been in this profession a long time, know a lot of people, uh, and, you know, there, there, there are some that I can truly call friends, and uh, Joe Montgomery is one of them. Uh, we have uh, been doing this for a number of years, but he has you know experience at all different uh, parts of uh, kind of higher education. Um, you know he can go through his resume, um, but you know he's you know worked at PWIs, he's worked at P HBCUs, he's worked uh, with College Board, and uh, most recently um, he's on the incoming board for NACAC, which is our international um, you know college admission association, national and international college admission association, and so he's on the incoming board. To that, and you know, there's many more accolades. Um, but you know, currently he serves as the VP of enrollment at Tuskegee University um, in Alabama, doing a lot of great things down there. Uh, but I, I just think you know, I'm excited about this conversation. One, just because he has such a wealth of knowledge about the field, he's really tapped in about current trends, and most of all, he's a father. He's an advocate of HBCUs and uh, education. So you know, just want to welcome you know, Joe, to the Application to Admission podcast. And, you know, just, you know, the floor is yours, sir. You know, tell us uh, what you currently got going on. Um, and then also just kind of give us your own educational trajectory, like where you went to school uh, in graduate work and kind of kind of how you got to where you're at right now. First of all, I want to thank you all for welcoming me to the podcast. I mean, I had listened to your, uh, at least one of your first podcasts and then all of a sudden I get this invite to be on a podcast. I'm like, oh my God, um, this is fantastic. So thank you for having me. I'm already locked in and following you all. So this is exciting, very exciting for me to be a part of, of your podcast. You know, Tim, you know, like you mentioned in your intro, I got into this work. We've been in this for a minute. Uh, for me, I started in 2002. So we're sitting at uh, about 20 years in the business and um, my my pathway in this um, profession has really led me to many different opportunities. And uh, those opportunities were, um, you know, at small 
historical black colleges, less, lesser known schools, uh, all the way to prominent um, private institutions and back down to historical black colleges and universities. But you know, it all started where I started, uh, where I went to college. Um, I went to a small historically black college in Denmark, South Carolina called Voorhees College. And there I had an opportunity to really uh, lean into higher education and education. I mean, in high school, it was more like, learn this because we're gonna get a test, right? Learn this because it was just kind of this transactional type of learning. I only wanted to learn because I didn't, I didn't wanna get punished when I got home because my grades were bad. Um, and so there was no real substance around learning. And um, it, it wasn't until I got to college that I started learning for a different purpose. And that's when I really realized that, um, you know, the way out of poverty, the way out of um, what I deemed to be a lifestyle that I didn't want was through education. And it was fascinating to me that there were, there were other young people in the world that came from backgrounds that were very much like my background. And what I really wanted to do is meet connection points. And so I got in admissions because I wanted to find other black boys like me who lived in small communities that just needed somebody to believe in them and make, making sure that they got into the right environments. And, you know, it's almost like when I went to college in the 90s, oh, you're not going to change me. You can't change me. And I start the recruiting process now by saying, I do want to change you. I do, I do want to change you for the better. I want you to know that there are options. And so college has allowed me to do that. Um, and then, so I've been in higher ed uh, ever since I, essentially since the 90s. So whether I was a student or working on a college campus. So that's kind of how I got started. Well, it's funny you said that, um, you know, Joe, uh, I'm a little bit older than you guys. You know, you, 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 and, you and Tim are new jacks on the block compared to me. I started this in 96, 97. And uh, my entire professional life has been in education, primarily independent schools, but I've worked at Georgetown, been a college counselor, some pretty ritzy ditzy private schools. And like you said, we fall into this, but then we find out that we're serving a purpose. And um, I have taken a lot of pride in being a college counselor when I was one at the schools. And then I started my own business in 20, 2006 to do independent counseling and building a company around it. But I've, I'm always fascinated by other black people um, but I'll even say go further, Black men, Tim and I have talked about this a lot, who get into this, who understand that education is a route to, to changing someone's life and is a route that I know changed mine. As, as a father, first and foremost, we're curious to know, what do you preach to your, not preach, what do you try to instill into your children about education and, and, and using that as a springboard for life? He preaches, he preaches. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, no, it, it, I'm preaching it and, you know, really trying to help them understand, like, you know, learning is not transactional, really trying to help them understand what is the purpose of learning these um, object, objectives in certain classes. I'm trying to figure out, like, helping them how, how to use their toolbox. You know, Tim, it's so important for uh, young people to understand the purpose behind learning. And so that's the, that was the start of it. The other part of it is, is challenging my, my kids to have this thirst to want to do more and be greater than me. And so it's really trying to help them set goals that are lofty goals. And you know, one thing I learned through this process is that you know, everybody's path is going to be different. And so being patient with the pathway, even when it's my kid, I need to be patient that maybe they don't go you know, A, B, C, D, exactly like I, I would like for them to go. But uh, hopefully that, you know, the things that we're instilling in them as, as young people, these are the kinds of things that they carry with them. And so when they're prepared uh, beyond high school that they're gonna make the right decision. So one, uh, seek higher education, um, seek uh, a skill, uh, and then, you know, get to a point where you're doing something that is more than just a month that you're doing something that has meaning to your life uh, and that you're doing something that gives meaning to other people. And so what I've learned with my daughter is that she, she started school with a purpose and she still finds this, this voice on the inside that speaks to her that, you know, this is my purpose this is who I'm supposed to be. 
And I think for us, it was easy because she was marching towards a goal that was her goal. So it was never my goal. And I think that's the main thing as parents that we got to figure out uh, through our process, you know, what is the goals of our, our young folks and how do we support their goals? Um, and I think sometimes we, we impose these things on our kids that, oh, you should do this or you should do that versus to listening to them and then trying to figure out, well, how can I be supportive as they continue to refine who they are and who they want to become? Yeah, man, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And so you, you mentioned your daughter there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, her um, educational path as far as, you know, you know, her choosing which college she went to, um, what influence that, you know, was it a family decision? Uh, you know, I know, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, kind of more your work experience. I know you worked at a PWI, worked at HBCU, were all those on the table. So could you just kind of talk about as you all went through that process with your daughter and just tell us uh, what she has going now? Yeah, so um, it, it's quite a story. Uh, my daughter, um, she, she was fantastic in high school. She did precisely everything we asked her to do in terms of challenging herself academically. Um, she finished in the top 10% of her graduate class. She did well on standardized testing. Um, so um, that was a lot. I think a lot of that was kind of fostered through some of the hallmark things that we did when she was growing up and we continue to do it with our younger, younger children, which is reading, reading. Um, we, she read a lot. I mean, it was, you know, a ton of books, um, but we put in a lot of time. And, and so that, that created a habit for her. Um, but ultimately she got into um, all the schools that she had applied to, uh, to some very selective schools, to one historically black college and university. And so, you know, we, we, kind of went through the process. I didn't think my daughter would go to an HBCU um, just because the list was a long list of schools. She had applied to 10 schools. And out of the 10 schools, she got into all 10. And, and so, you know, we were going through, um, you know, four years ago, my daughter was, you know, trying to make that decision. And um, we were going through a time where uh, there was a reckoning that was beginning to happen in this country. And she um, woke up, you know, she was sitting in her class one day and she was in an AP class and she got a very good grade on an assignment. And there were other kids in her classroom that didn't look like her. Matter of fact, she was the only brown student in the class at the time. And, you know, her classmates were asking her, well, how did you get an A? As if she didn't have the ability to get the A, right? Like, it was like, you know, for her, it was somewhat disrespectful for them to ask that question. And I remember she came home one day and she was like, I want to be, I want to be amongst people that look like me and they're just as pretty as me. And um, it was just so happened that North Carolina A&T State University was having a um, scholars day. We walked in and there were like 600 students who had been identified as scholars. And I think that said something to her just to visually see how many other students were coming to school or going to school there. Um, and they had been awarded scholarships. And ultimately, out of all the schools that offered her, she ended up going to A&T. She graduated in three and a half years. Um, and she graduated summa cum laude. She applied to six vet schools. She got into all six vet schools. And ultimately, she's making a decision to go to the University of Florida. That's amazing. And it's really a testament to, like you said, what you and your wife kind of planted in her very early with the reading and exposing her to different things. And, you know, part of our book, you know, the, the, the Black Family's Guide to College Admission, a conversation about education, parenting, and race, we talk about um, decisions that we make as Black families, sometimes put our kids in places that they can get micro or macro aggressions educationally, and then how does that affect them? Does that make them want to immediately go to an HPCU later on? Does that make them just more comfortable being in PWI situations? And that there's or dare I say, scared to go to HBCUs. Um, so again, that balance that you guys provided with your daughter is not just noble, but you know, I'm glad that she was able to discern for herself what the next step should be for her. And that she saw the long-term goals of no matter where I go, I'm going to excel. But right now in this time of my life, I want to be around my people. Um, so salute to her in, in, in many different ways. You, you did say another thing I just want to touch on I wrote, we wrote a chapter in the book 
called Liberal Arts is a Luxury. And you had mentioned earlier about parents steering their children or wanting their children to do different things in college um, that maybe may not align with who they are, but you know we need to listen to them and try to help them to kind of follow their course, follow their purpose. However, and this is a, this is a definitely a Shireen thing, Tim and I have wrestled with this, what do you think about students or, you know, as a parent or as a, as an educator, when students come to you and say, I want to major in something that doesn't necessarily have tangible attachment to a career, a, a philosophy or a um, psychology, so, something that is a liberal arts major that, you know, isn't going to get them a job off the rip, you know, once they graduate. How do you feel about that? You know, the, 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 you know, the biggest thing with that whole thing is that you know, I taught students all the time that live in other people's dreams. And if you're not living your own dream, then you don't have that kind of internal motivation to do the work. Like, you remember the first time you got so excited about something that sleep didn't matter to you, uh, the girl next door didn't matter to you. Like, you were focused on the topic at hand that the world around you didn't exist. And so I actually have conversations with students like that. Like, would you rather be doing something else than to do what, what you are doing today? And I think that's, the, that's one of the problems in higher ed is that you have these conversations with individuals and they say, well, I'm, I'm gonna be an engineer because my uncle said, be an engineer. Well, it's not that you can't do the work, it's because I'm not that interested in becoming an engineer. I'm just doing it because someone steer me in that direction. So I have a young man who's a computer was a computer science student at Tuskegee, and he was a computer science student. And he was doing he was doing decent. He was above a three point three GPA, but he really liked psychology. Like I asked him one day, I was like, "Dude, what do you do in your spare time?" Oh, I read this book. I read this person. He knew the scholars, so I asked him. I was like, "Well, why are you?" why are you doing computer science? He was like, well, my mom want me to do computer science. I said, well, what would you, what would you want to do once you graduate? What do you want to do? And he's like, I'd love to be a professor. I was like, well, what does it take? He was like, well, I know it's long and I gotta get a PhD and so on. He said, but I'm willing to do the work to do it. He said, I'd love to be in the classroom and teach other young folks. So he's, he's created this dream but nobody around him is willing to support that dream. And I think that's when we, that's where we kind of get it wrong because we look at dollars and say, okay, your purpose is centered around how much your earnings are going to be. You know, it, I'm not in education because we make a lot of money. You know, I'm in education because it's a purpose behind what I'm trying to do. And again, I said it in my opening is that I need to find other brown boys like me who are coming from communities in which there was, there, there's not a whole lot of people, there were not a whole lot of people in my community that believed in me. Like, if you met me in elementary school, be like, give him some riddling, give him something to calm him down versus asking the question of, well, what is he looking for? What does he need, right? So push me academically. It wasn't until I got into the tougher classes where behavior got better. Right. And I, I remember when I was in uh, high school, I took my first AP course and I remember going home, asking my mom to recommend that I take AP bio. And I remember taking it back to school and the school counselor told me that I was not AP material. Right. And I, because I wasn't AP material, I went home. Tim, I didn't I don't I don't say this often but I went home with tears and I got home my mom was like what happened I was like well they told me I wasn't AP material yada 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 so my mother went to the high school and mother told the lady she said put him in AP it's my job to get him support if he needs it that's what he wants to do that's where I kind of learned how to study and I'm not endorsing AP but I'm saying I learned a lot about who I was as a person I learned a lot about what it meant to study. And I also wanted to prove a point. And that point was, you cannot tell me that I'm not AP material just because you look at me from the outside. I got an A in the class and I got a three on the exam, right? I, I didn't get a five, 
but I did, I did outdo the other people that were sitting in the classroom with me. Man, so I mean, you know, it's 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 inspiring what you say, but it's also kind of, you know, we every almost every podcast we've had a guest on this idea of undermatching has come up. That somebody has told them that, you know, you maybe had set your expectations too high. I don't know if you can do this. And, you know, everybody has gone on to succeed and go beyond what maybe other people in that class was doing. And so, you know, we definitely, you know, unfortunately see this theme of undermatching, you know, people making assumptions about what somebody can or can't do based upon their exterior or, you know, maybe their own, you know, beliefs. And that that's something we definitely want to kind of continue to push uh, through this platform to kind of highlight, you know, I mean, we all work in the profession and we want people to have realistic expectations, but we also, you know, do not want people to, you know, just go about making assumptions about what people can and can't do, you know, give them the opportunity to shine, to thrive. And then like your mother said, if he can't do it, I'll get him the support. I'll get him the help, but at least give them uh, the opportunity. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you know, when we first met, uh, we had a, a, a mutual colleague uh, that, you know, you, you worked with at the University of Miami. Um, so could you kind of talk about, you know, your experiences, the differences in working at a PWI versus an HBCU and some of the challenges uh, that you see, uh, you know, for Black students and also from the professional end of it as far as reviewing applications, making a class, and enrollment? Uh, yeah, so, so, um, so the worlds are two different worlds. And I think the, the first thing is that, you know, trying to compare one world with the other world. Uh, they, all these schools were, even HBCUs all have different purposes. They're very different schools. And although we want to put them in a category, you go onto any of these campuses, they're very different schools. And, you know, PWIs are, you know, the same. And, you know, one of the easiest softball things to say is that, you know, these uh, PWIs are well-resourced schools. Um, not all of them are well-resourced schools, but I did, I had the fortune of working at one that was pretty well-resourced. And um, I've, you know, also worked at, you know, HBCU who were not starving for money also. So you got, you got that. Um, and then uh, the biggest thing that I saw or big noticeable thing that I recognize is operational efficiencies at uh, PWIs are one of the things that they, they, do, they do a really good job with. They do a really good job with synthesizing. They do a really good job with changing the market. They do a really good job with reimagining the process, uh, whether it's for different reasons, um, our institutions have a tendency of staying with the process too long uh, while the world is changing around them. And so that, that it increases this competition and it moves the comp competition, right? PWIs can shift the competition um, before HBCUs recognize what's happening. And, and they are doing it because it keeps them more competitive. And, and so our institutions do have to work um, they work from uh, responsiveness versus to we're going to shape what the what the what the higher ed space is going to be like, right? So, so now I believe we are now beginning to get a enough of us uh, in these chief enrollment chairs, where if we if we capitalize on the era um, that we're in right now, I am thinking this is like an HBCU era just by looking at who's in, who's a part of our pool of applicants, what types of students in our pool are having access to uh, institutions they would not have been admitted to five, six years ago. Uh, now all of a sudden, HBCUs and PWIs are competing for the same students. And I, uh, that's a testament to students looking at all institutions and not just looking at the branded names. But I think we're at a point where there's enough of us who have had experiences, wide experiences, to be able to say, we understand what's happening in this space. And now let's challenge the opportunity to rewrite it so that we're not competing, that now we're having the other institutions to respond to what we're doing. Um, and so um, I, there's a collection of us that we have annual calls where we're rethinking and reimagining what we're doing. 
Uh, and then we're using um, some of the playbooks from the PWIs. Uh, PWIs, they, they travel together. They market uh, collectively. Uh, HBCUs, we have a tendency of trying to go at it alone. And so we're putting together consortiums. We're traveling the nation. Uh, we're, we're talking deep, uh, talking to students deep into the high school years. So we're not waiting until you become a senior, but we're beginning to uh, inform families. Here's the kind of classes they should be taking so they can be successful in school. The same type of guidance that uh, PWIs are giving their parents, giving parents. So we're, we're beginning to do those things at places like Tuskegee and other, other HBCUs. And I think that's gonna help us in the long run. Um, but the selection process, you know, Tim, it's the main goal of a selection process is to weed out and, and to get to your best candidates who you believe that can come to your school, add to your community, graduate, go on to do something after graduation, whether it's going to graduate school or seeking employment. But that's the, that's the main goal of a college admissions process. And so um, our institutions have been really transactional by looking at these kind of like markers, like a GPA, uh, we can talk about GPA creep and we can talk about all those things for uh, till tomorrow. Uh, they look at standardized test scores as a rule, a rule kind of from the rule book. Um, but I'm challenging my team to go deeper. And, you know, we have shifted the, the model some. And so we can talk a little bit about what we're doing to read deeper into a student's application for match purposes. So we're trying to make certain that we're matching uh, with students by thinking by thinking about what's happening at the end. So who's able to get to graduation day? And then looking at if we decide to accept any types of students, do we have the proper services in place to ensure that this student can be successful at a place like Tuskegee? So our process is a little, is shifting some, um, and we will continue to shift it until we get, uh, feel really comfortable with where we are on the front end side of the process, just to ensure that we have all of the wraparound services needed for students to be successful. So something you said that again really has me buzzing is that you know you mentioned something about you know using the PWI playbook and whether that's marketing you know kind of bringing forces together to go out there and promote and um, I think I do think that's important you know when I worked at Georgetown we traveled with Duke and Penn and Harvard and we presented together. And I know there are some HBCUs that do, but maybe it needs to be more of a collective. You also mentioned that you're trying to go deeper into the, the, the high school experience, you know, talk to families earlier than just the senior year. Combining those two, whether it's the marketing of, of the schools, but also marketing of the process. One of the reasons why we wrote this book is because, again, big sweep in generalization, we found that many Black families, no matter what their education um, achievements have been are starting this process late and don't know about a lot of schools that are, are very limited to either the Ivies, the black Ivies, and then minimally, you know, where maybe where they graduated from. If you had to give advice to a, an auditorium or a stadium of black families about the college process, what would that be? What, how would you approach, tell them to approach the process, given your concerns about what you've seen thus far? Well, academic preparedness is the biggest key, key factor. Like, you know, that has to start um, as your kid begins to emerge into the high school years. And I, I, I use emerge purposefully because you have some students who are starting high school curriculum in the middle school. So I don't want to say wait until they get to high school. Uh, as they're emerging into the high school ranks, it's important that you have your... It's, it's wild and crazy to think about this, but everybody seems to have their hands on the steering wheel when it's time to drop them off at kindergarten. And the, the formative time to have your hands on the steering wheel is when they're emerging into the high school years, because that's what's going to really kind of set that next phase of their life. What's going to happen beyond high school? So we all know if you don't have, you're going to have very limited opportunities if you don't set yourself up right through your high school years. Um, and I'm, not, I, I'm saying, look, make certain that your kid is challenging themselves academically and that they are learning with a purpose. And going to college isn't gonna be for everybody. Uh, but 
what is going to be for everybody is when it's time to get a job, you're going to have to know how to read. You're going to have to know how to count. There's just some fundamental things that you're going to have to be able to do, even if you don't go to college. And it's important that that, that child is ready when they leave your home. Um, and so it's important for families to put their hands on a steering wheel and drive the car when it's needed. And I think it's needed when they're going into emerging into their high school years. And so I would strongly advise families to understand not only the curriculum that was suggested, but understand the power that you have to be able to um, influence their curriculum. So just because there's a suggested curriculum that's given to your kid from their particular high school, you still have the power as a parent to shape the kinds of courses, the kinds of things that your kid is doing in high school to make certain that they're prepared for whatever step they wanna take after their high school years. Uh, and the other thing, let's talk about the money. We all have dreams that we want our kids to go to school, but as a, as a whole, we need to do a better job at getting prepared, taking advantage of uh, college savings um, opportunities, a lot of states that have these college savings plans to make certain that, you know, when your kid comes into the world, that we're making a small contribution towards that each year because that additive from, you know, birth till time to go to school, it will be impactful enough that it will ease some of the burden that you're going to get um, when it's time to send your kid to school. Couldn't have said it better myself. Again, I think you're, you're dropping gems. And again, we appreciate you for having the, the seasoned experience to, to, to share this with us, you know, and the HBCU PWI thing, how you approach it with your daughter and her decision to go, how working at Tuskegee and how you approach it um, for kids that you may be working with, you know, black families, are you in agreement with Tim and I that black families need to apply to, or consider, I should say, both PWIs and HBCUs? Are you in agreement that, you know, many Black families, Tim is always blown away by the statistic. We did a survey and overwhelmingly Black families that we interviewed at least thought that the perception of PWIs was better than HBCUs. How do you combat that notion? And how do you kind of help people to see that there's value in either one and that you have to really go for the match fit for depending on where your kid is at the time? So, that, I mean, that's that's what we deal with every single day, right? So, you know, people come look at our institutions and I don't know what they expected before they got there. And then they realize, oh, my God, it's not much different from name a school up the street, right? So such and such school is asking for an essay, such and such school is asking for a letter of recommendation. Um, and, you know, we're using those those types of tools from students in the process to really uh, learn as much as we can about the student. And I think a healthy balance between uh, historically black colleges and PWIs, do your homework. Because um, matches can happen uh, at both ends. So I'm not advocating that every kid, every brown kid in America should go to an HBCU. And by the way, our institutions are open to non-brown people. We have never said, never, HBCUs have never said that non-African-American students can't study at their institutions. Say, say it, it to the people in the back here, you Joe. It, we have, back. <laughs> I want to make this very clear on this podcast. Historically, Black colleges and universities have never said that non-African-Americans are unwelcome. The institution's fundamental foundings came as a result of people who didn't have options. That is a part of the mission. So if you are a white person with no option, that's a part of our mission. If you're a Hispanic with no option, it's a part of our mission. It's just that in this country, if you start an institution, oh, it doesn't, well, it doesn't fit here, it doesn't fit here. Oh, we'll just create a category. Um, institutions just can't, our things just can't live as is. They all have to fit in categories and our category is historically black colleges. And I think that's what makes people feel like it's for black people, right? And so when you walk around our campus, you're not just looking at yeah, predominantly brown people, but brown people from everywhere, right? So we're not 
we're not just brown people from the U.S. We're brown people from around the world. You know, I talk to people about, you know, the population of Saudi students that we have on campus. They're always surprised. Tuskegee got over 150 students from Saudi Arabia. Again, that's again, that's a crazy dynamic, like you said, that we assume so much, but oftentimes um, don't know. And that, that goes back to you doing your research. Um, Tim, hit him with that question that, that I'm, I'm burning to ask. Tim and I are ready to, to take over Houston uh, in the fall of 2022. So we, uh, we're hoping that you're going to take it over with us. Tim, ask the question that, that, that's burning inside of me. I don't know what question is burning inside of you. I, I mean, I have a couple, so you go ahead. What, what question? Oh, see, Timmy, I got through the alley. Joe, we are so proud of you for running for NACAC board. Why did you choose to do that? Why is that important to you? Because again, I want you to know right now, when you see us at NACAC in Houston, uh, really sharing, selling, sharing our book with everybody, uh, we want to be supporting you as well. What is why is your involvement with NACAC so important and why did you choose to run for the board? Right. So I, I also saw an opportunity where at NACAC, they've shifted so much in the last few years that it just seems like it's the perfect time where they are willing, they have a ear to listen, an ear to really try to understand the complexity of higher education and not just serve a certain group of institutions, right? And so I noticed that historical black colleges and universities don't have a voice at the table. And we need to have a voice at the table if they're going to be making decisions that are going to help shape what, what we can, cannot do, uh, shift the landscape of higher education, but yet our collection of institutions don't even have representation at the table. I can't complain about the decisions if I wasn't willing to do what? I wasn't willing to serve. And so I, I'm joining the board not to put a feather in my cap, but I'm joining the board to make certain that the institutions that I connect with most, the institutions that I want to serve, will have a voice at the table so that as they're making decisions that we're there to help shape those decisions as we move forward. And so it was, it was me to say, I got to own this. I'll carry the flag. And I hope that once my tenureship, if I get in, if, if you all vote me in and I join the board, that we will have other members of historically black college and universities community that will be interested to come behind me so that we have a continuous chair at the table where we can have a continuous voice at the table. And so if we are not there, then, you know, if you don't see them, then you don't exist. You're right. You are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. So no, we, again, we salute you for, for wanting to be that agent for change and, and doing everything you can to, you know, walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So um, a question that we ask, you know, we really appreciate your time. We're going to start wrapping it up, but we, we want to make sure we're so, has so many diverse experiences in this profession. We want you to suggest one, two, three schools, maybe, that you really, really appreciate, value, and suggest that Black families do their research on great word that maybe traditionally or historically they have not? What are some of the, the hidden gems out there that you really think Black families need to, to, to investigate? That's a tough question because there's such uh, so many great schools out there. Um, and I don't want to act like I know every one of them, but I, I do have a strong a concentration of travel throughout the Southeast. And I think our part of the country, Southeastern part of the country has a lot of hidden gems um, of experiences that family families can take advantage of. And, you know, I think of some uh, places like, you know, and I, I just like this school a whole lot. Um, I took my daughter to her visit. She didn't like it at all. Um, but I like Barry College in Rome, Georgia. Um, and, and I like it because it, it's a, one of those liberal arts schools It's off the beaten path, um, but it gives you the space to really explore who you are as a person. Uh, it, it takes away all the bright lights and so on. Um, I really also like, and not because I work there, but I really do think they're doing amazing work at North Carolina A&T State University. Um, and I, I ab absolutely uh, like the fact that they are trying to challenge 
uh, the world in terms of who they are as an institution, the things they have done over the body of work since they've been around. Um, they're the largest, now the largest historically black college or university in the country. Um, you know, I like what Xavier is doing um, in New Orleans. They're now positioning themselves to open up a medical school. Uh, so everyone has known that they, they got this big thing where they're always kind of like, you know, well, it's, this is a big thing is if you want to be a doctor and you're African-American, then go to the place that knows how to put African-Americans into medical school, right? So they've been doing that for a very long time. They're the number one place that places African-Americans in the med school. So now all of a sudden, instead of trying to find a seat in someone else's med school, now they're working on getting their own med school. And lastly, Tuskegee, you know, we're doing great things at Tuskegee. Um, when you start talking about African-Americans who are veterinarians in this country, over 70% of African-Americans in this country got their degrees in veterinary medicine from Tuskegee. Like when people start thinking about like, well, what is Tuskegee doing outside of the airmen, right? So yeah, if you see a 70% 70, 70 of the time when you see a black veterinarian, they came through Tuskegee in the undergraduate years or they came as a veterinarian, um, came through our school college of veterinary medicine. So there are a lot of gems that are there uh, at, at our schools, at historical black colleges and non HBCUs is really worth exploring. And that, it's so easy to look at like television and look at sports and let those big branded schools uh, control kind of like, oh, I'm gonna go take a look at this school. And that's because you've been seeing it so often through television and media and so on. There's places that are out there that can be perfect places for students. I mean, I, I remember when Kennesaw was a small school now all of a sudden it's a booming school um, as a part of the USG system. And so when you start looking at the system schools and what is what I call to be a hidden gem is Kennesaw. Um, and then Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville. That's a really nice school. So it just kind of depends on what the student is looking for um, and having that student to be able to connect uh, with the institution and those connection points, they matter. Uh, whether or not they're going to be successful or not at school. Man, uh, those are some awesome suggestions. Uh, I think one of the things that we really want to do is, you know, everybody knows the top 20. Uh, when we, you know, uh, coined the Black Ivies um, as far as HBCUs, uh, but we really, you know, want to extend the list of those hidden gems as uh, you talked about. But be before we let you out of here, I, you know, I couldn't let you get out of here without asking about test optional. You worked at the college board. You know the big business, the testing is involved in higher education. So just you know, share your thoughts on kind of test optional, how it's playing out at Tuskegee and how you see it playing out over the next couple of years. So, um, you know, we made a decision to go test optional out of necessity through the pandemic. And um, you know, Tim, quite frankly, we're still learning. Um, so we got a validity study that we are waiting to get some results from now to look at students that we let in for the fall of 2020 and the fall of 2021 on the test optional policy, how did they perform? And we are comparing them with, you know, students that we admitted uh, using uh, test scores. And so we're, we're trying to determine uh, how, if we will keep a test optional policy and if we keep it, what, what would it, what will it be? Uh, and then on the standard side, looking at, you know, what does it mean to have a particular score on, you know, SAT or ACT. You know, I, I really do think that, um, you know, there is a place for standardized testing. Um, and that's going to be a very controversial statement. Um, but it's really about how schools use the test. So I'm talking about using the test beyond admissions, right? The test is the purpose of the test. Each of those tests is to help best inform colleges and universities on what students might have a command of, right? And what we see too often is, we see that the test scores stop at the admissions office. They don't go deep into, they don't go beyond that. Like, how does it inform what the math instructor is gonna teach in his or her uh, entry level math class? How does it inform what 
the English teacher is going to teach in their classes, right? If you really kind of think about uh, tying the scores to command of subjects that a student is showing that they have when they took that test however many years ago, it means that they have something to work with. What is that? And how do, how do we use that and apply it to the classroom? And I think that's the challenging, that's the challenging part. Uh, and I think when people start thinking about it, they can't really wrap their heads around how to make it work. So you get this stopping point in the admissions office. And so when I say there's a role for it, you know, with test optional, you know, with, when it comes to scholarships, you get the test optional kids who, you know, there's some ambiguity there. You can get in, but I'm not sure if I'm gonna tie the money to it. Or you get in and then I need a score to then tie some money to it. So when you ask me, is there a role? There's a role because if I don't have all the money I need to pay for school, that standardized test score is gonna play a role along the way. I might, need it, I might not need it the day you read and make a decision on my application, but schools are wrapping back around to say, hey, if you wanna be considered for a scholarship, we're gonna need what? A test score. So what I don't wanna do is I don't wanna set families up with saying, look, you don't need it no more. Don't take it at all. I'd rather you have a score and not have to use it versus the not having a score and needing one. Let me tell you something, Joe. Your boy Tim wants to hug you right now. I mean, he he is so stomping. Now, I say clapping, stomping for, <laughs> you know, making sure that people take these tests again. And I, I tell my clients all the time, take it, arm yourself with it, then make the decision if you're going to use it or not. But to think that you don't have to take it at all is foolhardy. And some of the elite schools, particularly the PWI ones that, you know, are kind of being um, anti-test in, in, in many respects, Tim think that's a you know, sh short-term game, and, and um, he's been very adamant, and I support him on that, that testing is a necessity for Black people, and that we should not be taking this very temporary time to, um, to abandon the test. So I'm glad that you I, are- I, There's a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions in the academy right now about what's happening. Schools don't want to sacrifice their retention rates. Schools don't want to sacrifice their completion rates. I mean, there's, and then here's the other thing. Well, what, is it, what does it cost me to run test optional policies? Because, you know, the, the next response is, if we don't have these wraparound services on our campus, we need to get wraparound services, which means that our workforce is going to increase. So there's these other pieces to, to test or not to test. You know, I, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm still there. Um, and, but I am an advocate for not testing too much. Uh, I do think if you had, you know, you asked me over the years, over 20 years looking at test scores, you can't say one test is better than the other test for a particular student or a person of color. You have to at least experience the test. And then now the student needs to make a decision. Which one, which one of these tests is better for me? And at most, if you take the SAT and the ACT, and if you take it two times, max three, there's no need going beyond three. You get diminished returns. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a true believer in that. Um, Joe, again, we, we are, you are not just a knowledgeable person, but a, a, uh, <laughs> a, an opinionated professional who we need to have your voice, not just in the profession, but kind of, you know, you need a bullhorn out there to talk to many of the Black families that we're talking to, not from a preacher standpoint, from a perspective standpoint. So again, we really cannot thank you enough for, for being a part of this, um, for sharing your, your suggestions, for giving you, for giving us, excuse me, a lot of thought-provoking things, food for thought. So we want to make sure that we salute you and all your efforts at all the schools that you've been working at as a parent, as a professional, and trust, you know, as our book drops, we expect that you'll be a guest on our show again and um, it can help us to really just move part of this movement of families understanding their choices, understanding the application to admission process, and then of course, copying the book of, you know, the Black Family's Guide to, to College Admission. So we appreciate you in so many ways and we hope that, um, that you've enjoyed yourself on our podcast and that you'll join us again. 
this has been great and you you all have an open invitation thank you for having me all right for those of you who are closing this out thank you guys so much for tuning in we're only getting better please check us out on facebook um, understanding the choices is our group our website understandingthechoices.com on instagram understanding the choices and of course please buy the book the the pre-orders are out there on amazon on um uh, barnes and nobles tim any parting words for the people because i know you you believe in doing it for the culture i, I do i do i just can't thank joe enough for, for taking the time uh, sharing sharing his knowledge you know like i said you know a true friend in the profession you know we you know have very candid conversations about what what we think needs to take place and you know it's always good to have somebody bounce ideas off of so joe i appreciate your friendship i appreciate everything you're doing can't wait to celebrate you in houston and keep doing great things at tuskegee uh, somebody was uh raving about tuskegee talking about the, the the florida glass buildings you have just the setting of the campus and so y'all are doing some great things um so, you know, just continue to do that. No, we got you back. Um, until the next time, we're out. All right, y'all. Be good.